And I've entitled my message, Experiencing Joy While Experiencing Jail. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. On September 8, 1994, a U.S. air flight, Flight 427, crashed just miles from the Pittsburgh airport. It killed all 127 passengers and the five crew members that were on board. The cause of that crash was a mystery. It seemed as though the plane just dropped out of the sky very suddenly. So it was with great interest that the FAA began its investigation. And of course, when it recovered the black box, it listened intently to what was on it. The recording revealed that it was really literally just a number of seconds before the pilot detected the problem and the plane crashed. The recording from the cockpit, the pilot said, oh, and then there was a long string of curse words. And then the crash, and of course, the recording went silent. It was in those final moments that the pilot's habits, maybe we would say his character, was revealed for all those who were listening to hear. Dire straits often reveal our true self, our trials, our hardships often reveal what's really on the inside. And that's in contrast to what we see here in the book of Philippians and even in the first verses of the book of Philippians. Here is Paul incarcerated in a very bismal Roman prison for preaching the gospel. But everything that comes out of his pen, or we would say uh, out of his mouth, indicates joy, indicates a thankfulness that just oozed from his heart. Why is that? Because of that's what was in his character in his walk with God. So let's break down these first 11 verses, experiencing joy while experiencing jail. In verses 1 and 2, we want to look at Paul's greeting. Let's consider Paul's greeting in verses 1 and 2. Most of Paul's epistles started very similar. Matter of fact, they started very similar to all of the Roman writing in that day. There would be a salutation. There would be an acknowledgement of their God or gods, as the pagans would do. And then maybe an expression of love or an appreciation. And that's really the pattern that Paul follows right here. So Paul's greeting comes in verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy. So he's writing this letter from both of them. Because remember, Timothy was a part of the evangelistic team that came to Philippi when they held uh, meetings and preached to the people there by the river, the Jews. They didn't have a synagogue, preached to them, and Lydia was converted. Paul and Timothy, bondservants, literally slaves, doulas, slaves of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Bishops is the word overseer, the Greek word episkopos, one of the references to the pastors, overseers, pastors, shepherds, elders, all referring to the same people. He calls them in this passage bishops and deacons, and we're familiar with them. By the way, notice Paul doesn't do what he's done in many of his letters. Paul the apostle, he doesn't say that here. He had such a unique and loving relationship with this church. 
He didn't have to put the authority term out there as he does in many of the other churches like Corinth because they were questioning his authority and his apostleship. These folks didn't question Paul at all. They loved him. They hung on his words, realizing they were from God. So he simply says here, Paul, a servant, and he uses that word, doulos, or the plural of that word, slave to the saints. And that's the word hagias. You've heard that term before. The word for saint is hagias. It's the idea of those who are separated. They're separated unto God and they're being sanctified. They're set apart from the world and now they're growing in their Christian life. So Paul describes himself and the believers at Philippi that way. Saints being written to by a servant, Paul and Timothy. And when he called them saints, by the way, it's a term that we probably feel a little awkward with. We don't like to refer to ourselves that way. When he calls them saints, it's because they were born-again believers. And every born-again believer is a saint. We don't go around maybe introducing ourselves that way, but it wouldn't be inaccurate and it wouldn't be inappropriate. St. Lester, I kind of like the sound of that. I'm not sure everybody does, but, but that's true. If you've been saved, you're a saint. It doesn't mean that you've been canonized by the church. It doesn't mean that you're, if you're a saint, that you're sinless. It doesn't mean that you're an elite group of Christians. That's not what Paul is talking about here. These were regular people, but he calls them saints because they've been born again and they were a part of the church just like you and I here today. That's the term that's used in the New Testament, meaning those that belong to God, saints, those that are separated unto God, those that are being sanctified, growing in their Christian experience. By the way, The contemporary world, the world that we live in, the contemporary world would see the apostles as the saints and the church members as servants. But it's just the opposite of what Paul says. Here, the apostle is the servant and he's writing to the saints. Paul was a saint as well. But it's reversed of what contemporary people think of. You know, saints as being those that are ensconced in stained glass windows and have been heralded for maybe centuries as being outstanding Christians. But here it's the servants, the apostles, that are writing to the saints. Now it's been about 10 years since Paul's been at Philippi, but the bond was still strong. Isn't it interesting? We can be separated by great distances from people that we love, and uh, still feel like there is a bond of affection. And yet we can live with people close by and we're separated from them spiritually. But Paul loved these people and they loved Paul. It was a reciprocal relationship, even though Paul was in Rome and they were in Greece at Philippi. There was a strong bond that had lasted years and it endured the miles. I hope you have some people in your life like that. Every once in a while, I bump into people at Dr. Nelson's funeral. A, a younger man came up and said, hi. And I knew his face was familiar, but I could not place him. And he said, I'm Volker.
And he was in my youth group, and he's now a pastor in Pennsylvania. And I hadn't seen him in, I don't know, maybe 25 or maybe 30 years. But instantly the bond was renewed, and we talked about family. We talked about old times. We talked about ministry together. There's just a renewal. When we have a spiritual relationship, we may not see those people very often. We may not talk to them very often. We may pray for them regularly, but that spiritual bond is still there, and someday we'll be reunited in heaven. That's the glorious thing. Paul understood that. Notice the order, he says here. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. This typical salutation. But notice he says grace and grace precedes peace. And that's the way it is in the Bible. That's the way it is in life. Grace forms the foundation of the latter. Without grace, it's almost impossible to have any lasting peace. Grace is the foundation for peace. Charis, the Greek word, is the foundation for shalom, uh, the word for peace. That was the greeting of the, of the Jews was shalom. May peace be with you. It's not just talking about not being at war, but a more of an inner peace, a peace in, in your life, tranquility. You're right in your relationship. That's what Paul is saying. You can't really have peace in life if you haven't experienced the grace of God. If you've experienced the grace of God, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of the condition that you find yourself in, you can have peace. And Paul knew what he was talking about because he's in prison. And he's got peace. Why has he got peace? Because he's experienced the grace of God. And he's in the will of God. So I have to ask you, do you have peace here today? You should have. I hope that you do. Romans 5.1 says this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We get that. Because we've been justified by God, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace in this world. So if you're here today and you're troubled and you're struggling and you're living in turmoil and you lack inner peace, the answer is probably experiencing the grace of God, coming to know him as Savior. And hopefully after that, we all endeavor to shape all of our relationships around the grace of God. We want all of our relationships and people in those relationships to know the grace of God so they too can have peace and we can have peace with them. So first, Paul's greeting considered, verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 through 8, Paul's heart revealed is how I'm saying it. We see Paul's heart. It is remarkable that Paul, while in prison, is thinking of others and not wallowing in self-pity. We have a number of people that work in set-free prison ministry. We have some folks that go to jails and preach the gospel here in our church. And most of the time, when they meet someone in jail, they're talking to people that are talking about how terrible it is and maybe how wrongly that they've been incarcerated. And they talk about the miserable conditions that they're living under, and they're nothing like the prisons of the ancient world. 
Paul is not wallowing in self-pity. He's not saying, oh, woe is me. Look what I get for doing good and preaching the gospel. No, that's not Paul's attitude at all. He's thinking of others. He's writing to the church at Philippi, and he wrote several other what we call the prison epistles. Let's read these verses. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, making requests for you. He mentions prayer in verse 3. He mentions prayer down here in verse 9 as well. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until this very hour, until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in defense of the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me. You're right here with me. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul, as he conjures back in his mind the church at Philippi over the years, the years since he's been there, he says, it brings to my mind, it brings to my heart joy. Now, Paul was in a difficult circumstances. He's the one that's suffering. Not the church at Philippi. He's the one that's suffering in the prison. But he says, it brings to my mind and my heart joy because he's reflecting upon his arrival in Philippi in his missionary journey, and he meets Lydia, and she's brought to Christ, and then he meets the demon-possessed girl, and he delivers her, and she comes to Christ, and then he meets the Philippian jailer while he's incarcerated, and he and his family come to Jesus Christ. He's remembering the conversion and the establishment of the church there in Philippi, and even though he's in crummy conditions, his heart is filled with joy. And happiness, he says in verse 4. All because of this has taken place. Not only did Paul have joy in remembering their faith in the Lord, but it was a joy. What does he say in verse 4? Look again. He remembers them in their conversion and it's a joy, but he remembers them and it's a joy, he says, for him to pray for them. I think we need to be honest with ourselves. Often Christians don't look at prayer on behalf of others as a joy. We look at it as a duty. We look at it as a spiritual command or an obligation. But we don't probably go around saying, I just can't wait to pray for my fellow believers or, or the believers in Myanmar or Africa or Haiti or someplace where they're suffering. I just can't wait to hit the floor and get on my knees and pray for them because I just love them in Christ. Most of us aren't that way. But Paul says, it's a joy for me. Now, he had a personal connection but it was a joy for him to remember these saints before the throne of grace. And you've heard me say before, the way we view our Christian ministry is the way we will fulfill it. If we look at Bible reading as a chore instead of an opportunity to connect with the God of the universe, that's how we'll fulfill it. 
If we look at it as, a pr- as pr- prayer being a responsibility for every committed Christian, and it's an obligation, then that's how we'll fulfill it. So many times we need a, an attitude change. We need a perspective change on the Christian life. Paul says it was a joy for him to carry them to the throne of grace. And he says in verse 5, notice what he says here, for your fellowship. You recognize that word. There's a lot of familiar Greek words here. It's the word koinonia, to have in common. He says, we have something in common. I'm in prison. I'm preaching the gospel, but you're a partner. It literally means partnership. You're a partner with me preaching the gospel. While you're preaching it there, I'm preaching it here, and you've made it a possibility for me to preach the gospel here because you've helped meet my needs. So he says, we have this fellowship, this koinonia, something in common. They share a common faith and a common Savior, and they're sharing their wealth together to support Paul. Now look at verse 6. Verse 6 is one of the great verses in the book of Philippians, and it's certainly one of the great verses in the New Testament that talks about the perseverance of the saints. Uh, That's an old term that Christians have used for centuries, the perseverance of the saints. Uh, Verse 6 says, being confident. In other words, Paul says, I have no doubt and I have absolutely every assurance Being confident of this very thing, I know this for sure, he says, that he who began a good work in you, who was that? Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit converted them, that he who began that work at the point of salvation, he who started that work at the point of salvation will continue it all the way to the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, you're going to continue in your Christian life all the way until you get to glory. Nobody can interrupt that journey. Nobody can stop the progress of your Christian experience. And he's talking about sanctification. He says, once you're saved, nothing can pull you out of the Christian life. Nothing can force you Out of the Christian life, God, he says, started that work and he will finish it. It's a promise that God always finishes what he starts. That's why it's considered one of those great verses in the New Testament, because it gives us a confidence, gives us an assurance that God always finishes what he starts in a person's life. If you've led someone to Christ or you're here today and maybe struggling in your Christian life, if you've been born again, God's not going to let go of you. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to say, well, you're not making progress fast enough. I'll move on to someone else. That's not how the Holy Spirit operates. We might grow at different rates. We might not manifest it all the same. As people, we often start things and we never finish them we drop out we get distracted we change our minds sometimes people's lives are littered with unfinished projects unreached goals but not with God when God saves someone he continues that work of redemption all the way until they were fully sanctified and completely glorified when they get to heaven now that's a wonderful promise that's a wonderful scripture that we can hold dear and we can assure people with that if you've been saved 
God's going to continue his work in your life until you get the glory and the job is done. We can be as confident as Paul that when someone trusts Christ, that good work, that's what he calls it. It is a good work. It's a good work of redemption. It's the good work of sanctification. It is a good work. That good work is just beginning. And the Bible teaches that the threefold work, and you know that. It's the work that God does for us, and that's in redemption. We don't, we don't do anything. We don't contribute anything to redemption. God did that completely through his son when he died on the cross. God does that work for us in redemption. God, the work that God does in us, that's sanctification. He that worketh in you, the Bible says, to perform that which is pleasing to the Lord. So the Holy Spirit's working in us. He does a work for us, redemption. He does a work in us, that's sanctification. And he does a work through us, that's our service. Paul says, I labored more abundantly than them all, but not I, but God working through me. We have a work of service that the Holy Spirit equips us and he enables us and he compels us to serve. That's all of God. And that work continues throughout our life. In describing this fellowship that Paul has with the Philippian believers, he states that ultimately they would benefit from his suffering. He says in verse 7, Just as it is right for me to think of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense of the gospel and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me. Paul tips his hat. Paul acknowledges the Philippian believers because they've been supporting him financially and they've been praying for him in his work of evangelism even while he's in prison in Rome. He states ultimately they would benefit from his suffering. People would be saved. They would receive an accrual to their spiritual account because they were supporting him. But more than that, Paul was in Roman prison in defense of the gospel. Because Christianity was spreading. It brought to the forefront of the Roman leaders, the Roman Empire, the emperors and the Senate, this growing segment, this growing sect called Christianity. And it was being debated and discussed. Is it a legitimate religion that can be accepted throughout the Roman Empire? And Paul says, I'm here in defense of the gospel. It is causing all of the Roman world to recognize the truth of Christianity. And my suffering is going to allow other Christians to avoid these chains and this imprisonment is what Paul has in mind. The decision would affect the believers throughout the Roman Empire. And eventually, as you well know, Rome recognized Christianity. And then Rome really almost became Christian through the influence of the early church. So Paul says, I'm here in defense of the gospel. I'm here in prison by God's design. That's how he looked at it. Paul believed that God allowed him to be in prison, not just to lead other people, the centurions and others that he was chained to and other people that came and went, not just to lead them to Christ, but on a larger scale, God allowed him to be in prison for the defense of the gospel. And Paul defended it before Herod Agrippa and many other individuals outside of Rome. Even, you know, he went to Rome to defend the gospel in his latter imprisonment. Since Philippi was a Roman colony, 
Paul's imprisonment would affect them as a Roman colony. And, and remember, Paul was incarcerated, and they said he's turning the world upside down, and he's preaching things that are not lawful, lawful for us as Romans. Well, that was about to change. Certainly one of the proofs of genuine love is mentioned in verse 8. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection or love of Jesus Christ. One of the proofs of genuine love is an ongoing concern. Your mother may live on a different part of the country or in a different city, but the fact that you love her, even though she lives somewhere else, you're probably communicating with her and communicating your concern, your affection, your love for her. Even though Paul and the Christians at Philippi were separated by distance, they, they still had an ongoing concern for one another. Paul was concerned that the church was moving forward. They were dealing with the false teaching of the Judaizers. He was concerned that the persecution wouldn't disrupt their meeting together and wouldn't discourage the saints there. There was an ongoing concern because Paul had a love for them. In your prayers, I hope that you pray for those that are new Christians, for those that have been recently baptized, for those in other parts of the world where Christianity is discriminated against and even Christians are persecuted. The believers ministered to Paul through their gift, and he was greatly concerned for their spiritual well-being because they had a partnership, he says in verse 7. And Paul would continue to propagate the gospel. Look last of all at verses 9 through 11. Paul's prayer examined is how I'm outlining it. And really, I hope you realize that there are many prayers, both in the Old Testament, certainly in the New Testament, and they're there not just to record what they have written or what they have prayed, but they're models for us. They're models for us. They're like a template for us to say, okay, this is how one of the great Christians prayed as he walked with God. That's how I should pray. And really, verses 9 through 11 are a great model prayer. Maybe the prayer even starts earlier back in verse 4. He says, in every prayer of mine, but I think he's, he's referencing what he's going to talk about. And, and literally, he prays in his letter. And I see four things here that are mentioned in Paul's prayer. And we want to kind of take them apart here in the remaining minutes. But I remind you, in the Old Testament, the high priest, Aaron was the first one. He had a, a special priestly garb, as you know, from his turban all the way down to the robe with the bells on the bottom. But he carried on his chest an ephod, remember? Over his chest was an ephod. It was like a small breastplate. And in it, it had 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So when the high priest was ministering in the Holy of Holies or just in the holy place, he carried on his heart the people of God. When he offered incense, he was literally praying to God in behalf of the tribes of Israel, on behalf of the people of Israel. He was the intercessor, we would say. He was the mediator, we could accurately say, in behalf of the people. And he bore them on his heart. That's exactly what's going on right here with Paul. 
He carried the churches that he had established on his heart, and he prayed for them. And it was a joy, as we know, we've already read, it was a joy for him to pray for them. And prayer is a part of the Christian life. You've heard the the illustration, I'm sure, that someday we get to heaven, God's taking us through heaven to these giant warehouses and stuff stacked all the way to the ceiling, and we say, what's this stuff? And God says, well, that's all the stuff you could have gotten if you would have prayed for it. I think there's an element of truth there. But Christians are to be praying. We pray together as a group. We pray as individuals. We have a pastoral prayer. It's instructive on how to pray. And this prayer is instructive on how to pray. We pray for people and probably, it's not original with me, but I know I've said it many times and I've heard other people say it, you never know someone's heart better than when you are with them in prayer. You get a grasp of their spiritual maturity. You get a grasp of what's really important to them. You, you, you understand a little bit better of their walk with God, but we're never closer to someone than when we're with them before the throne of grace. We're never closer. We can have a meal with them. We can have conversation with them, but we're probably never closer spiritually with them than when we're praying with them before the throne of grace. And by the way, not just here, but all of Paul's and Peter's and others, Paul's prayers were not word salad. That's what Kamala Harris is often accused of. She says stuff, but it has no meaning. It doesn't make any sense. Paul's prayers were not word salad. They were not trite phrases, worn out cliches that, you know, people banter around. No, Paul's prayers were not that way. They were thoughtful. They were specific They were passionate. It's an example of how we should pray thoughtfully, specifically, with heart. That's how Paul prayed. That's how we should pray. Observe four specific requests that Paul makes on behalf of the Philippian believers. First, he prays for them to have abounding love. Let me read verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in all knowledge and discernment. So he prays, and we should pray this way. We should pray that those that we love have an abounding love. We understand what that means. Abounding love is the idea of a cup overflowing or stream that's overflowing the banks of the river. That's what Paul is praying, is that their love would so emanate out of them and be so effusive that people would recognize that's a person that loves people and loves God. I'm not sure if people would say that of us. Maybe they say, well, he's got a grasp of Scripture, or you know, he fulfills his duties, but they should say of us, man, they're lovers of God and they're lovers of people. You just sense it being around them. They love people. They love God. Paul says, I'm praying that that will be true in your life, that people will recognize you. Sometimes we hand out business cards. The business card of the Christian is what? The calling card of the Christian is that they love one another. By this, John says, 
you will be known in the world that you love one another. So Paul prays that they would have an abounding love. I don't think anyone here today would argue that your love quotient, not your intelligent quotient, but your love quotient couldn't be higher. I know mine could be that our love quotient would go up in our Christian life, that we would really sincerely love God and love people. So he prays for an abounding love. Second, look at the last part of verse 9, first part of verse 10. He prays for them to have a biblical discernment. So it's not a helter-skelter love, not flower-child love. You know, it's not just love everybody. But it's a discerning love. He says, still, your love would be recognized for its knowledge and in all discernment so that you might approve the things that are excellent. So he prays that they would have biblical discernment. Their love would be characterized by a biblical discernment. Without biblical discernment, how else are they going to approve or, as he says, he says the word approve, or choose those things that are excellent? If you don't have discernment, anything will work. Whatever fits, that's fine with me. Whatever, you know the saying, whatever. But when we have a knowledge and biblical discernment, we love the best things. We choose. Discernment means making choices. We choose between that which is evil and that which is good. But for a Christian, that which is good and that which is best, or that which is good and that which is excellent. The Bible uses those very words. So it isn't, well, hey, it doesn't really matter. It does matter. Paul is praying, God wants us to pray, that we would have the kind of knowledge and discernment that we would choose in our life, make life choices that are excellent. That's what he prays. I don't know about you, that's why I pray for my children, my grandchildren. Grandchildren going off to college. I expect a collective gasp at this point. That how could he have grandchildren? Two are going off, one's already in college and one's heading off next year. They're making choices. They're under influence. Pray that they will make the right choices. Approve those things which are excellent, best, and not just in college, but all throughout their life. That's what he says. How else can you choose that which is excellent and pleasing to God? You know, we weigh our choices in the light of eternity. And when we weigh our choices in the light of eternity, we make the best decisions. You've heard me say this probably many times. If I'm making the decision on what I want right now, may not be the best decision. Or what I think will bring me pleasure next week, probably not the best decision. Or even a year from now, a little better decision. But if I weigh all my decisions and take them through the grid of what is the best in the light of eternity, I'm going to make the best decision. The longer the look, the better the decision, we could say. So we want to make the best decisions. We want to weigh our decisions in the light of eternity so we can choose, we can affirm that which is pleasing to God. So who we decide to love or what we decide to love is not based upon sappy sentimentalism. It's not based upon physical attraction. But Paul says it's curated 
in knowledge, in biblical knowledge. Then we make our decisions based on that curated knowledge of the scriptures. You know, when a baby learns to speak, they may call every animal doggy. Probably all of us have been through that. Doggy. We say, no, that's not a doggy. Doggy, doggy. They call every animal doggy. But as he matures, he learns to discern between dogs and cats or cattle, cows. He begins to distinguish. He begins to discern. To a little child, every car is a car. But some people here today are car guys, we say. They're car guys. They can tell you every make, every model, the manufacturer, and the year of every car that they see on the street. They're car guys. They've trained their mind. They've trained their eyes to discern the difference. God wants us to do that with our choices. We discern that which is best. We constantly, and that means, practically speaking, we're constantly reassessing our opinions and our lifestyle choices, saying, I want to do that which is best and pleasing to God. Look at the third thing he prays for in verse 10, last part. He prays for them to have a blameless deportment. Now, we don't use the word deportment so much today, but I think all of us understand what it means. Lifestyle. He says, I, I want your lifestyle to be blameless. That's how I'm praying. Matter of fact, he says here that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere. Notice that word sincere. You've heard that probably explained from the Greek language before. It means without wax. Sincere means to be, it's translated, held up to the sunlight. That's literally what it means. How did the word sincere, you know, come in our language from that etymology? Well, in the ancient world, they used jars, clay jars, and vases, and pots for everything. Matter of fact, most of what we know from antiquity, the ancient world, comes from clay pot, pot shirts, pieces of clay pots. Pottery was everywhere, and pottery makers were everywhere. It was a very common occupation. And they would crank out the pots, spittoons, and bathroom things, and, and flower vases, and water jugs. They cranked them out all the time. And sometimes they weren't as high a quality as they should have been. And they had cracks in them, or they had crevices in them. And so they would fill them with the wax that was the same color as the vase, colored wax. And so a discerning pottery vase buyer would hold the vase up to the sunlight and turn it around to see if the cracks in the vase were filled with wax. Because if it was, that vase would break very soon after it was used or filled with water. So the word sincere means without wax, held up to the sun. In other words, it's without failure, without flaws, or as he uses it here, blameless and sincere without offense. Without offense describes the inconsistencies in our lives that may cause others to stumble into sin. Paul says, I'm praying that you live such a life that your life is holy and it's sincere and it's without offense that you don't cause non-believers or even new believers to stumble and fall into sin because they see an inconsistent Christian. That's what he's saying. That's how I'm praying, Paul says. 
That's how we should pray and how we should live. Live lies that may not cause others to stumble. And we make it a lifelong pursuit. What does he say in, in verse 10? Without offense until the day of Jesus Christ. So it's a lifelong goal until Jesus takes me home. The day of Jesus Christ refers to when he comes back for us. So I would live without offense, sincere, until Jesus takes me home. Look at the fourth thing he prays, verse 11. He prays for them to have righteous character, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Righteous fruit can only come, can only emanate from a righteous tree. We understand that. Believing sinners have a justified position before a holy God. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ. So we have imputed righteousness, but that's not what he's praying for right here. They've already had imputed righteousness because they're saved. They're saint. That's not what he's praying for. He's praying for righteous living is what he's praying for. That they will take the personal responsibility now that they have a new standing before God, and they will put that into practice, just as First John tells us, that they would take this new standing before God in imputed righteousness and live it out in their daily experience. They would live a righteous life. That's impossible without the help of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do very little. No, he didn't say that. He said, without me, you can do nothing. In the big picture of spiritual success and spiritual fruitfulness, you cannot do anything without Jesus Christ flowing through your veins. I am the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. So it's our dependence upon him that we produce fruit. Fruit bearing comes in a day-by-day experience of walking with the Lord and in his word. When Lawrence of Arabia, you remember that name, when Lawrence of Arabia, many movies have been made about those days and Lawrence of Arabia, when he returned to Paris after World War I, he brought with him some of his newfound Arab friends. So he showed them around Paris, and there's a lot to see in Paris. He took them to the Louvre. He showed them the Arc de Triomphe. He showed them the Eiffel Tower and Napoleon's tomb, just to name some of them. But they had very little interest in any of those things. He had to keep going back to their room. They spent much of the time in their room. They were fascinated with the bathtub faucet. They would turn it on, water would come out. They'd turn it off, water would stop. They kept turning it on and off. They'd fill up the tub, they'd drain the tub. They couldn't believe that they could have as much water as they wanted. Later, when they were about to leave Paris, Lawrence of Arabia came to their room and he caught them trying to remove the faucet from the bathtub. They explained. In their words, they said, it is very dry in Arabia And what we need are faucets. If we had them, we could have all the water we want. They couldn't comprehend modern plumbing. They'd never been around modern plumbing. And so they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Lawrence had to explain that the effectiveness of the faucet did not lie in the faucet itself, 
but in the immense water system that flowed throughout the entire city of Paris and ultimately that the water came from the rain that came down and the snow that melted on the Alps and then fed into the water system. Some people's lives are as dry as the desert of Arabia. That is the life, really, the Bible says, picturing the ungodly. Psalm 1 describes a life that is fruitful. He is like, speaking of a Christian, he is like a tree planted by the rivers of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And that water of life is Jesus Christ. And we plant ourselves in that life. That was Paul's prayer. Paul's praying for their growth and their maturity and their righteousness and their fruitfulness. And really it's a model, as I've said, it's a model, one of many that we find in Scripture, of how we should pray for others. As we pray for believers as well as lost people. Let's pray right now. Father, we bow before you and we realize that Scripture is... (laughs) It's so resplendent, it's so full, it's a cornucopia of truth and example. And we want to learn from it, we want to implement its truth into our lives, and we want to even pray the way some of the great Christians, like the Apostle Paul, prayed. So help us. Pray for those that we love, even though we're separated by miles, we pray for them. And ask that you'll help us to find great joy in gathering together in prayer. We know it pleases you. It's commanded in the scripture. And it brings great results. So help us as we pray. Help anyone that might be here today that doesn't know you as Savior. If their life is barren if their life is not characterized by the peace of God that we talked about in the earliest verses of this chapter. May they seek the peace, which is found in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, even today. Help us as Christians to walk in peace as we walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.